with absolutely no sports talk welcome to the latest episode of the just not sports podcast this is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like just not sports with nfl draft season in full swing this week we will talk to former nfl first round pick aaron maben about his new career as an activist artist a topic that could not be any more in Gareth's wheelhouse than if we filmed it in a record store with free seltzer water. <laughs> <laughs> I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. On the other line, laughing at his love of vinyl records and free seltzer, our seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, how, mu- how many seltzers do you drink a day? Uh, I go through about a 12-pack a day. Now, I say 12-pack because, yes, I have tried the Penguin and making seltzer at home, but I find that it does not get uh, fizzy enough for my taste, and I would prefer to buy it and keep cold cans in the fridge because, as I worked out with Brad, you and my mutual friend years ago, Dan Pribble, cold cans is the preferred way to drink any carbonated beverage. Maybe the occasional from a gun, but it can get kind of flat. Plastic bottles are terrible. So probably between 10 and 12 cold cans of seltzer a day. All right, I got a hot take on this. Uh, If I could eliminate the aluminum can from existence, I would do so. Because a plastic bottle or a glass bottle are way, way better. Better how? I mean, are we going to get into an environmental conversation or just to drink from? Because if it's to drink from, I will disagree vehemently. If you're going to tell me that you've done the uh, done an EPA workup before they close their doors on uh, the environmental impact of plastic bottles versus aluminum, uh, then I'll listen. First of all, there's nothing more appropriate to mark the death of the EPA than like porn porn one out. <laughs> <laughs> like, just wasting another bottle <laughs> under the pile that that is the wreckage of our environment. Uh, no, it, no, no, no environmental stuff here. I mean, it's all recyclable. I, I just think I don't like drinking from a can like physically. I don't like the way it feels on the mouth, and I always end up playing with the pop top and pulling it off. And sometimes that little that little piece will drop down into the soda. Then you got to drink the soda with like, you know kind of like one eye open, just making sure you don't swallow that bad boy. Drink with one eye open. <laughs> and then I just, I, yeah, I don't yeah. know, for whatever reason, I, I prefer a cold bottle. If they reserve sodas in bottles, I would absolutely still buy those. But I don't think the bot- the plastic bottles, oh, that's a, yeah. I don't think the plastic bottles get cold enough or something. Like I could pull one of those out of any bodega. And it feels like, did you just put this in? It's like, no, that's been there six days. So yeah, yeah you gotta you gotta throw that stuff in the back of the fridge, but then you risk it icing over. It's a real fine balance. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. All right, not so. with us this week. Adam Millard at South by Southwest. You will hear from Adam very soon. We have taped shows with him. They are coming soon. I keep saying something like three weeks ago. Sorry. <laughs> um, and Joe Reed, our editor extraordinaire. Uh, I believe Joe is in Vegas this week for a shoot. Uh, Gareth, where do you think Joe 
would uh, would spend his time in Vegas? I, all right. It's not that it's a movie or anything. I have not been to Vegas since I turned twenty one. I'm thirty seven. Yowza. So you would have stayed in old Vegas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where'd you stay? The Luxor? Because it was new and exciting? I even drove through. I didn't stay. I, I just haven't been to Vegas in that long. So when everyone gives a hot take on Vegas, I'm like, yeah, I'm more of a New Orleans guy and leave it at that. I could absolutely see Joe finding um, like Circus Circus to be a delightful throwback. Oh yeah, and the prime rib on the buffet. Joe's such a happy guy that I could totally see him just being like, "This is a delightful like place here at Circus or, or, or at Caesar's Palace," you know. Whereas I think mm-hmm. Adam would be would be at he'd think the win is too old. <laughs> you know, he'd be looking for like whatever the newest is on the strip, and he'd have three guys that would help him get the best room and the best deals. What is the hot? joint in vegas i mean my knowledge of vegas pretty much ends with oceans 11 uh i don't know i mean the wind was hot a couple years ago when the the wind took it away from themed uh casinos again so the you know after Mm -hmm. new york new york and all that stuff opened up and the luxor then it just became about opulence and elegance again i Mm -hmm. like i don't know i still think there's something to be said about like the mirage it's in a great like part of the strip um if yep. you go too north i think you're and again i've only been to vegas a couple times but um and mostly for work but if you go too north you just feel so removed and it's hot man it gets hot you walk around you, you're sweating it's no good no bueno well uh, i have done a couple shoots in vegas but it's been like arrive in the morning shoot all day red eye home like i have not gone to a casino a hotel anything. real quick this so is my just- this is my one vegas story Oh, you know what? Let's just make this the first part of our opening segment. So, on the show, we, uh, uh, we're going to take the open and make it wide open. You can talk about anything around sports or sports culture. This is about as loose of that definition of around sports culture as I can, as I can get. So, here we go. I'm in Vegas with my now wife, then girlfriend. This would have been 2006. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. 2004. So, we're just doing that thing where we're Vegas tourists and we're just walking up and down the strip like kind of popping into places to, you know, gamble for a little bit, hang out. I'm not much of a gambler. So we sit down at a uh, blackjack table and I get on a, like a, like a mini hot streak on a $5 table. And I think I wound up winning like 65 bucks in like five hands. And I just Mm -hmm. was like, I'm walking. And you know, it's like two in the afternoon. Everyone's like, what? And I'm like, I'll take those winnings. Let's go. So I just cash out get a couple of like kind of like bizarre kind of hey look at the tourist looks so we walk immediately over to a little bar there and kelly says let's let's get like a frozen drink here like it's really hot outside we'll get like a daiquiri or something like that i'm like sure whatever i'm on i'm on a high i would have bought anything at that mm-hmm. point so i would have bought warm seltzer and cans man i was like just really feeling <laughs> about as baller as a five dollar table player can feel and so i'm like oh there's a there's a, a gl- like a a plastic a plastic glass uh, in the shape of a football. I was like, this is great. Like, I can drink out of this, and I'll take it home. It's huge. I'll take it home. It'll be like a, like a game day mug or something. You know what I mean? So I'm mm-hmm. like, I'll take that, please, with a daiquiri. And I get you wait in this huge line while they make it. They finally hand it over to you, and they're like, great, that'll be $60. And I'm like, <laughs> what? 
And I look up and I totally blanked on the prices. And I go, oh, but I was so embarrassed and the line was so long and they'd already made it. So I was just like, here you go. And I just pissed away my winnings on that. And I took two sips of it. I was like, I don't even like daiquiris. <laughs> that is awesome. That is good Vegas. You got taken. I like it. I no longer own that. Uh, I no longer own that, that, that football mug either. So <laughs> ultimate whammy. The house always wins. Uh, okay. Uh, especially if you're Sheldon Alderson or whatever that guy's name is. Um, Gareth, anything Adelson. you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, you know, I talked a lot this past fall on, well, I want to talk about NFL free agency. And I, I talked a lot this past fall about how I was sitting out the NFL season and how I kind of wasn't following the sport as much as I used to. Boy, I am all in on this free agency period. Guys I don't know signing deals for $4 million to play guard for the Browns. Oh, yeah. I am reading that article. Uh, Brock Osweiler trade. Uh, everything the Patriots are doing. It just, for some reason, I think that my football Jones hit sometime after the Super Bowl, and I was ready for this. And this also goes back, Brad, to a conversation we had years ago where you said, basically, I follow late-night television, and conference realignment in the NCAA the same way where it's like you only care about the backroom machinations of who ends up where and then once the games come on or the late night show comes on you have no interest that seems to be how I might be approaching football at this point I'm like oh yeah I want to know how the deals are going down and then if last season holds true once the games kick off yeah I'm cool I had my fun in March April so that I am, but I am listening to every podcast, reading every article. I'm all in. This is a shocking revelation. <laughs> I'm not gonna. <laughs> this is as ba- this is as shocking as if you were just like, "Hey, man, I got really back into The Simpsons. These new seasons are great." I I don't know what happened, man. I just uh, maybe I was jonesing for football coverage or something, but I just. Uh, you know, free agency hit. I, I've, I've said on here, I really like the Around the NFL podcast. I think those guys just, frankly, whether you like football or not, they have good chemistry and are funny to listen to. And they Tell also our have listeners that who's thing. on that show. Uh, that is Chris Wessling, Greg Rosenthal, Dan Hansis, and Mark Sessler, the heroes as they're known. Look, they. I'm going to say something that's going to sound insulting, but if you're a regular podcast listener, you'll sort of know what I mean. Like, podcasting by its nature is a very disposable form of entertainment. You listen on your <gasps> mute or your drive. I'm shocked. How could you say that? Well, you listen on your commute, your drive. Yeah, dude, you, I know. I'm just saying, you, like, our show is oh, the yeah. most disposable of this medium. Right, right. So anyway, so... It's this disposable form of entertainment. They have perfected a podcast that I will listen to for an hour straight, and it's and I will laugh and enjoy it. And when it ends, if you put a gun to my head and said, "What did they say?" I'd be like, "I have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't remember any of it." Um, but I had a good time listening, and it's just it's a nice audio background for my fifty minute commute in New York city. Like the timing is just perfect. So I think in listening, in listening to them and all their prep for the free agency period, I was like, yeah, free agency. I am ready for this. Let's go. 
And I jumped all in. And I think early on what helped was the Browns making the Brock Osweiler trade. Because then it was like, oh, yeah, this is now completely... We're going full NBA on this. Where it's just... Players are becoming a collection of assets. Exactly, exactly. And I was like, now this is interesting, as opposed to just waiting for trades that never quite happen, which I feel like is most more often than not what actually happens with NFL anything. Like the NFL trading deadline is the dumbest date on the calendar. If I have to, like, having worked on shows where it's like, well, don't say anything, the trading deadline's coming up. Like, okay, fool me 78 times on the NFL trading deadline, shame on me. I'm done with that shit. But this has been good. The Patriots basically have no draft at this point. I don't think they have a pick in the top four rounds. That's interesting. Brock Osweiler is basically, has become Brock Osweiler's expiring contract. That's interesting. So... Football, well done. This is what you needed. I'm back in. I'm curious to see if I'll watch a game on my own in September. Fascinating. All right, I got one more. The movie, and yeah. and, and related, I would say. Uh, the movie Draft Day, uh, I caught mm-hmm. it on a plane ride recently. Um, that sounds appropriate. Yeah, that movie is a pile of uh, steaming hot shit. Uh, and... <laughs> I have some advice. I, I think I have some advice for people making modern sports movies. Mm-hmm. It falls into what I call the sports night trap, which is that Aaron Sorkin, when he wrote Sports Night, wanted to make like a great workplace drama, but he also really wanted to show how much he motiv- he knows about sports. So that's why you get these horrible scenes where a, a producer is talking about the importance of working the count for five minutes with really pithy language, and it's just like, just stop. I have made it through two episodes of Sports Night. Apologies, Josh Charles. I I cannot watch that show. All right. So here's my deal. Here's my advice. Either go all in on the culture around the game or don't don't weave it in at all. I would rather see a movie called Draft Day that's a really – it's a romantic comedy and a story about a guy, like, you know, getting his one last shot. I would rather see that with, like, no football talk. And just make it as make it as is just like goofy, funny, and subversive subversive as you want. Don't waste time trying to tell me that you know football strategy because at the end of the day, you're like horribly broad strokes about player development and what makes and how guts and heart make a winner. Like they don't really measure up, and I don't care. So. In future rom-com football movies or sports movies, just drop the pretensions and do what you're trying to do fine. Like, you cannot have a toe in both waters. Or if you do, like, Major League is a good example. Major League doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the art of Willie Mays Hayes stealing. It just shows him getting busted and putting up a middle finger. Like, I'm good with that. I get it. We're great. Like, just be well, funny. I, I think Major League is one of the gold standard sports movies of all time. The other problem with Draft Day is that it's going to pale in comparisons to another similar movie that came out around that time, which is Moneyball. That movie is rad, is worth multiple rewatchings. The way Brad Pitt points in that movie, like his various pointing mannerisms, is a masterclass in acting. That guy has got his pointing down. I think Joe and I talked about this on the last podcast. Like, he, It's a Robert Redford performance. It's an effortless, yes. cool, yeah. and... 
Brad Pitt, like Leo DiCaprio, in my opinion, are at their best when they're just being the best version of themselves and not trying to overact and be someone else. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And to that, um, what's important to note about that is to our listeners that did come up in the last podcast. And I'm going to stop this conversation here because there was a very lengthy thread among the Just Not Sports hosts that broke out after that. And apparently we all have some hot takes when it comes to the best Spielberg movie and specifically Catch Me If You Can. So let's table this to when we're all four here and revisit it around Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, so. and, and we all have hot takes on how The Departed might be the worst the worst Best Picture winning movie ever. Oh, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that movie is garbage. <laughs> okay, so. well, that's wide open. Let's get into it. So, Gareth, we had a lot of fun with this interview. I mentioned off the top, right in your wheelhouse, Aaron Maben. He was a uh, first-round draft pick with the Bills, ended up playing two seasons with the Jets. He had a cup of coffee with the Bengals, kind of got soured on the NFL after that and uh, retired fairly early in his career. And now he has really redefined himself as a a dynamic artist. Uh, You should go check him out on his Instagram or his Twitter. I mean, he's just a, a very... Uh, talented guy. I mean, Gareth, you're, you're a huge art fan. How would you sum up for our listeners who probably are like, oh yeah, he's an NFL player, so he can he can you know paint in straight lines. But no, I mean, he's he's got real talent. Like, how would you describe his style and sum up what he's doing? Look, I will just say this: when we were doing the interview, a lot of times we get, when we do these interviews, so we don't step on each other because we're in different places. We'll have like an in, uh, an instant message chat open and i i am brad at one point just based off his work and his answers and just said this dude is no bullshit <laughs> like i think aaron maven is the real deal when it comes to not just art but what he's trying to achieve with his art number two and number three like the intellectual rigor he has put into it he's he's a really bright guy who's doing really interesting work and that's that's as much as I, I like the highest recommendation I can give is like I was interested in this interview. This isn't filler. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Also, uh, Gareth, I did invite Breck Shea, uh, U.S. men's soccer uh, player, Orlando City SC star. Uh, I invited him onto the show. I was working with the Orlando guys on it. And then he got mm-hmm. traded to Vancouver, so we're gonna have to reboot that process and <laughs> get go. in touch with the folks up north. Okay, we're gonna go right to the interview right now. Stick around; we'll have distractions afterwards. We will be right back. All right, Aaron, thank you for joining us. Um, I am the unofficial art correspondent for Just Not Sports, as I spent a lot of time in Chelsea and at museums and things like that. So I want to start by asking, what is your, how would you describe your style of work? Um, man, that's a hard, it's a hard question to really answer. I think, um, to describe my work, you really have to look at it from a broad spectrum, you know, because there's so much that goes into it, you know, um, I'm a painter, but I'm also a photographer. I'm a writer, um, you know, so that all of that encompassing, you know, um, I guess that all would fall under the kind of title of art activism, you know, um, using my art mm. as a tool to 
um, bridge the gap between people that look at the world differently. And um, I tr- also try to use my, my brush, my camera, and my pen to um, contribute in a positive way to the narrative of um, what's going on in our inner city communities and to really tell the truth about um, some of the issues that plague our most vulnerable citizens in this country. Okay, so let me ask one before we get into the activism part, though. Can I just ask, like, so your paint, your painting in particular, is what I spent a lot of time studying going into this, and so I I wanted to ask, like, it's you thread an interesting line between realism and activism and um, imagination and things like that. So I, I guess I was just wondering how you've arrived at this style and voice, if you will. Um, well, obviously it wasn't a overnight thing, you know, um, to me that, that story goes back way before I ever picked up a football, you know, um, I was painting and, and drawing and creating since childhood. And, um, I was fortunate enough to have mentors that, um, were pretty big, pretty major players um, on the in the Baltimore art scene and on the national spectrum. Guys like uh, Larry Poncho Brown, Charles Bibbs, um, and I was a student of guys like Kevin A. Williams and uh, Emery Douglas, and um, you know the list goes on and on. Um, I, I always, I always admired artists that that threaded that line. Who um, you could see the fine artist in them. But they they use their art to make dramatic statements, you know. Um, and I've always been, uh, I was always a kid that had a really interesting outlook on the world, you know. So from a young age, I always had a lot to say. But um, I definitely wanted to refine um, my style and the language in which I spoke, you know. So I think that you know it's taken years and years, but I'm finally getting to the point where I'm being able to blend. Um, between those two worlds pretty well, you know, because, you know, growing up, I idolized, you know, guys like Da Vinci and, you know, Rembrandt and Jackson Pollock and all, you know, all the painters that um, the art historians know. But um, yep. the art that spoke to me was um, with the art that was coming from the guys that I named as my mentors, you know, and also through guys like Ernie Barnes, who I've grown a connection to his family, um, over the past year, you know, me and his son have uh, been introduced to each other, and, you know, he shared a lot of stories with me about things that his dad went through that, you know, me as one of the few people who um, has made a transition from art, and I mean, from football into art, um, I actually understand and, uh, and sympathize with. So um, it's, been, it's been a long journey, but I definitely think that, that those are two worlds that I, I try to blend together as, as best I can through my work. Uh, you know, uh, I've spent a. Uh, I was really, you know, um, I was really inspired looking at your portrait work, which I think is um, a fascinating, uh, you know, kind of expression of of your style as an artist. Uh, recently, I was listening to um, a podcast that was talking about, you know, Winston Churchill getting painted, um, you know, near the end of his life and complaining that uh, the artists were, were taking too many liberties uh, and, and using more of a modern art style, modern art in, in very, you know, snide air quotes by him at the time. And, and, and I, I'm always fascinated by portrait work that I think doesn't just, you know, capture, you know, the look of the subject, but, but 
almost kind of finds a way to, to speak to deeper truths. When looking at your, your, your series, I, I just am curious, when you're doing a portrait, how much are you trying to um, you know, make a statement about that individual through the aesthetic style of the piece versus you know, clearly just uh, you know, replicating the subject? Yeah, um, replicating the subject is boring to me. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, like, like I said earlier, I have a lot of deep respect for the traditional and the classic painters um, that, that, that came before me. But in this age, and with me being the type of artist I am, so, for example, I do photography as well, right? And in doing photography, portraiture is a very intimate um, style of, of telling stories with a camera. Um, and as a painter, sometimes I kind of feel like, well, if a, if, a, if a photographer has already captured this image, why would I go through all this trouble, all these hours, and all of this um, turmoil just to produce the exact same image? Right. And it's already yeah. been done. You know, that's, that's always been boring to me. Um, the whole idea of a painter has always been fascinating to me because we create we create the world as we want to see it or as we see it and um there are things about the way that i look at the world that make it drastically different than what anybody else has inside me so that's what i share you know um when you talk about portraiture like you know i do i do portraiture especially like so case in point this is black history month so um Throughout the month, I'll be doing, I'll be showing every day, every other day, um, portraits of, of historical black figures that that have had a huge or significant impact on me. So a lot of those images will be portraits, but most of them have been embellished. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of them um, are as the as as whatever photographer um, took the picture. But, um, for example, I did a portrait of Tupac. Um, and instead of doing it, uh, uh, portraying Tupac with like a baseball cap or um, with a bandana on his head, I put the Black Panther beret on his head that Huey, Huey Newton used to wear. Right. Um, and I put a, 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 a turtleneck and a black leather jacket, you know. Um, to my knowledge, I've never seen an image with Tupac, of Tupac you know, with that with that that attire on, but it was saying a deeper statement about the inspiration that lies behind a lot of his music and his mother and and his grandmother and and, and all of their uh, ties to the Black Panther Party and how that influenced him in his upbringing as a child and how he looked at the world. You know, for me, that tells a much better story than me just seeing an image of a young Tupac and saying, yeah, I'm going to recreate something that looks exactly like this. You know, um, that's it's not enough. That's always been too boring for me. I, I mean, those are great points. And I, I look at, like, the portraits you've done of, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or Trayvon Martin, and, and I can stare at them for a long time. I'm not just saying this, because I, 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 I keep trying to find... You know, I, I guess I keep wondering about the interpretation of the way you've painted them. Like at times, I look at those and I, I all I see is like determination in the eyes of the subject. Other times, I see a touch of sadness or um, like a trace of loss. And, and I'm just wondering, how conscious are you of a spe- specific direction you might be taking a portrait to um, to highlight something with them, or 
do you know, I guess, do you like to leave it very open to interpretation from, um, you know, from the person receiving the art in terms of what your intent is? I like to leave some things open to the vantage point of whoever is viewing the piece, obviously, but um, I do pay an extremely close amount of attention, uh, amount of attention to um, the details that you spoke of, the eyes, yep. and um, the emotion that the subject is conveying, you know, especially when um, I'm, I'm trying to capture almost the ghost of a soul that's no longer here with me. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, understanding that in order for me to get the people that are looking at my piece to connect with the subject, I have to catch, I have to connect with the subject. And it's a really grueling process because as an artist, it takes a lot out of you. Um, you know, because um, you understand that as you, cre- as you go about creating this piece, you're becoming more connected with this person. You're becoming connected with their story. You're um, taking on the burdens of a lot of the trauma that they experienced in life because you're, because for no other reason than the fact that you're trying to convey that to other people. Um, especially when you think about the fact that a lot of the people who I choose to depict, there's been controversy surrounding the name, you know, um, and there's been controversy surrounding the story behind their life or behind their demise. And I'm trying to force people that, cared or people that didn't care about their humanity or their existence to care. I'm trying to get a person that looked at Trayvon Martin as uh, as a criminal or as somebody who deserved what he got and trying to force them to look at him as a human being, as somebody's son, as somebody that had a, a soul, a future, you know? Um, and there's something about a picture that, you know, that circulated online, especially when it's a low-quality quick picture and it's grainy. People don't, they aren't forced to visually connect with the person. You know, you don't see the way that the sun shines off the skin. You don't see the, the beauty in Sandra Bryan's smile. And um, it's, it's hard through conversation even sometimes to get people to... to, to that humanity or to empathize with somebody's pain but when you can make it real for them you can make it visual in a way um in my mind at least you 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 provide an opportunity for them to be humanized in the eyes of 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 the viewer Mm uh i have to say like hearing you talk about it i was struck i went to the whitney recently and there was this uh de kooning woman painting from the 50s and on the way you're describing your work reminded me of this, and I honestly, it gave me a real insight into how artists think. Because I love art, but I don't make it. And he basically said, I am not interested in questions of abstraction or figuration. I am just interested in any way that I can get the most ideas possible of my own into a work of art. And... The way you're discussing this, it seems like I have to ask you just because I want to learn more about it. Like, is that sort of the universal pursuit of art is just this 
struggle to get your ideas down um, and you'll worry about how it's categorized later? Yeah, I mean, that was something that actually translated well for me as an athlete. You know, um, growing up, I never, I got to a point in life where I really stopped concerning myself with what everybody thought about me. You know, mm-hmm. understanding that um, you can tell your story, but you can never control how somebody else receives it or how somebody else tells your story or how somebody perceives you. Um, at the end of the day, the question about it is, is accountability. Who are we trying to be accountable to? Um, right. As a, as a man, all I all I really care about as far as my accountability is to my children, to my family, you know. Um, so as an artist, my responsibility, what assesses me and what keeps me up all night is telling the story through my lens, from my vantage point. Because at the end of the day, most of the time, the story is about people that look like me and, and stories about people that come from where I come from aren't told by the people that live there. You know, they're not told by people who care about the trauma that, that leads to a crime or it's not right. coming from people who care about the effects of, of homelessness or, or poverty on on a person over over the course of a lifetime, how that contributes to them living their lives in a certain way. Because all of those are elements of the same story. And history is is our greatest teacher of that because if we don't learn these things, that we're we're doomed to keep repeating the same cycle. So for me, um, I can't control how somebody perceives my work, and I don't want to. Like I don't, I never wanted everybody to look at my work to like it. You know what I fear? My deepest fear is that somebody could look at my work and be indifferent to it. Right, right. You want to be taken seriously. I don't care if you like it or if you hate it. I want you to love it or I want you to hate it. But I don't want right. you to be able to look at it and stay, stay lukewarm. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, what my art is supposed to do is supposed to force you to look yourself in the mirror. You know what I mean? Like, like imagine we're all sitting in front of a piece of uh, a piece of art, right? And yep. the three of us are looking at it uh, uh, ourselves, but we're having a discussion about it. We're all going to fundamentally look at that piece of art in a different way. We're all going to take something from it. We're all going to interpret it differently. We're all going to have a visceral reaction, whether that be anger, whether that be hate, whether that be love, whatever that is. But in that discussion that we have, we're going to be, we're going to be forced to declare who and what we are. If I'm a racist or if I'm a bigot, that's going to become evident in that conversation. If I'm misogynistic, some evident in that discussion. You know what I mean? If I look, if I think the sky is green and you think it's blue, that's going to become evident in that discussion. But the beautiful thing about what art is, is it reveals that none of us are the same, but that's the beauty of us as human beings, right? So there might be a million worlds between your world and mine, but the space between us is a space that allows us both to grow. So me as an artist, the service that I provide the world is providing the platform for that bridge to be built. Because until I'm real about who and what I am, until you're real about who and what you are, and until we're able to see, okay, I'm here, you're there, how do we get closer to each other? What's different about your world than my world? And and, and what can I learn about it to make me a better person? That's what changes. That's what ultimately changes the world, you know? So um, 
I hope that answers the question a little bit, but that's kind of that's kind of what I'm trying to do when 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 I make some of the statements that I make in my work. No, it definitely does, and it. So, <clears throat> leading into this interview, I wa- I wanted to talk to you about something that happened to me, and I mean, like I'm a white dude. I love art. The history, the canonical history of art, is a lot of dead white dudes, um, and like you mentioned it earlier, it was. You know, Jackson Pollock, Da Vinci, et cetera, et cetera. And then, but what you talked about and your influences were a different set of artists and people that I think now are coming under this, oh, let's re-examine what was happening in black art to get a better understanding of it. And like, honestly, like, I know Ernie Barnes' work from the Marvin Gaye album cover. I did not know he was a football player. And I'm like... Dude, as a guy who likes art and works in... F- I did not know that, and I feel I feel stupid, but I'm glad to have learned something today. Everybody could say, oh, this guy, he used to do this, and he became famous doing that, too. Like, like whenever... I, the only the only comparison anybody's ever been able to make when I've done an interview with people was, was Ernie. But, like, I was, okay. I, was, I, was, I was big on the good time when I was younger. You know, the Sugar Shack piece was a big... I, I've just always been a fan of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last week, my family and I went up to the Met because we wanted to see the show, uh, the Carrie James Marshall show at the Met. And to any of our listeners who don't know his work, uh, he is a black artist and pl- paints only black people. And he paints them very black. Like, there's not, like, brown. It is black. And he's kind of throwing that in your face. But he's he's classically trained, and he... Part of his mission is exactly what you said, Aaron, which is to recontextualize the entirety of art history and put your experience in it. And there are these huge narrative paintings, and some are brightly colored, you know, but they're very, they're unflinching, they're unapologetic about the subject matter and what it is. And I have to tell you that walking around that museum, that was the most diverse museum crowd I have ever seen in my life. Like, I turned to my wife, and I was like, I have never seen more people of color in a museum, ever. Ever. And it was a real smack in the face to me on, yeah, if you want museums and cultural institutions to be more diverse places and have more of a conversation about other people's experience, show those artists. It's not hard. And so, what the problem is, the problem is that the museum industry is facing right now, and I'm actually reaping the benefits of it because they're forcing themselves to be more inclusive. Um, the fact that they are losing patronage, you know, right, um, right. black folks have been tired of going to white museums to see white walls, or I mean, uh, white faces on white walls. You know, um, and at this point, it doesn't speak to your experience. Yeah, it's like, yo, you think about this. Think about all the little black kids that are in school, right? That have they're having trouble reading, right? And people are so quick to diagnose them with this and that, like they diagnose me with dyslexia so fast, but they didn't take into account what we're being taught to read. I don't connect with hey. that. You know what I mean? Like I never saw myself in the catcher in the rye. I know I don't I don't give a damn about Tom Sawyer. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> at the end of the day, 
these were wait, wait. Huh? Aaron, hold on a second. Let me stop you right there. You don't you you didn't get into the catcher in the ride. The story of a rich Upper East Side white kid going to prep school didn't grab you and just take you in. Exactly. But no, you think about it. You know, we we identify with with where we see our own reflection. You know, mm -hmm. um, and the world it, it was it was a certain amount of time where the world kind of ran from its own diversity. You know, the world mm -hmm. has been getting a lot blacker, a lot browner. You know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. A lot more inclusive. You know, uh, for a long time now, and and institutions like like the arts. Um, like the like museums and things like that, you know, it was very. It's always been very bureaucratic, but it's also been mm -hmm. very whitewashed, you know. So even artists as 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 great as John Michel Basquiat, you know, while he was living, yeah. couldn't get his work into into the um, the Museum of Modern Art, you know what yeah. I mean. So uh, it's 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 obvious that it's been like this for a long time. But the great thing about the amazing thing about Black ingenuity is. You know, they can keep us out of certain spaces, but they can't keep us from innovating and, 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 and changing. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were having, you know, we had our arts on walls. We had graffiti. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, then when they, and then when they started saying, and then when they started taking our graffiti down and started saying graffiti is illegal, then we started finding our own spots, our little holes in the wall, and we made galleries. And then street yeah. art became this huge commercial um, market boom, and the art world saw it, and they said, "Wow, like we need that." So now we need to commodify that. That are cutting brick out of walls and putting it in their museum. You know what I mean? Like, but yeah. even when they started doing that, like, look at the artists that really got that became superstars overnight. It was white guys, like Banks. Yeah, you right. know what I mean? Like, and, yeah. and you know, but now just but but. But at the end of the day, like, you always have, like, I'm not making it a black versus white thing. Like, you're always going to have a, uh, extremely, incredibly gifted um, uh, uh, white artists. But they're just right. usually the ones that got pushed to the forefront where the black artists who were just, in, just as talented, you know, they struggled, you know. Um, mm. and, they, and they had to find ways of, of sustaining themselves and, you know, working on breadcrumbs and stuff like that just to make good art. But yep. you know, you're 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 now starting to see a younger generation of artists that understand understand how the game is played and realize that there's a market for something different. And that's where guys like me come in. You know, there's a there's a whole yep. lot of people that love art, you know what I mean, that that, that love um, the art of expression, the art of storytelling, the art of photography, the art of painting, the art of dance. And they want representations of those art forms that they can relate to, you know? So mm. they, they're they diligent about finding them, those spaces where they're available. So when a guy like me comes into town, they find me. You know, when a, yeah. when a writer comes into town that's speaking their language, they find them, they support them. And um, social media has contributed to that. You know, um, the, the political climate in many ways has contributed to that, but... Um, it's been mm -hmm. exciting from that perspective to see that transformation take place because I've been an artist my whole life. It didn't become yep. cool to be an artist until about 10 years ago. You, you mentioned <laughs> the political climate, and I am, you know, I know off the top we talked about your style being very much, you know, art activism. Uh, you have been someone who has been an advocate for a variety of social. Uh, causes you you do a lot of public speaking. You work. Um, you're an advocate for the funding of the arts. In this current political moment, 
where it seems like so many parts of, um, you know, again, like perceived uh, social justice or progressive values are, you know, let's face it, like under assault by a very outspoken president who is has campaigned against a lot of those values. How vital do you feel like your voice is now? And how vital do you feel that the artistic community needs to be in advocating for itself and what it believes in? Everybody with an artistic platform right now needs to be grabbing a metaphorical bullhorn and screaming at the top <laughs> of their lungs. <laughs> you know, um, no, nah, I mean, you know, I can quote people that have, that have came before me, you know, Nina Simone, one of the one of the mm-hmm. greatest inspirations said that in her career, like, an artist's responsibility is to reflect the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, I come from the city, I come from the city of Billy Holiday. You know, I come from the city mm-hmm. of Frederick Douglass. You know what I mean? I come from the city of the uprising of 15, you know, after they killed Freddie. So, like, protest and, and struggle and, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, this isn't anything new to us, you know? And, and this is definitely an unprecedented situation. Um, never in my life did I think that I would see um, a presidential candidate even have the kind of candidacy that Trump had. But the reality of it is he is in office. But the one good thing that I, I think that I'm, I have seen since, um, even since his candidacy started, is um, black people as a whole, even the millennials, who have been for a long time largely um, disassociated from the political process as a whole, um, are more engaged at this point right now than I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since uh, even since the inauguration, like, you know, I've heard most. I've heard more people, 25 and under, talk about calling their politicians every day and 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 attending town hall meetings. And um, when I go to city hall for business dealings that I have, you know, I'm I'm seeing a lot more faces, a lot more black faces, a lot more brown faces, a lot more 25 and under faces. And you're going to see collectively, I think, over the next few years, um, a galvanizing of the efforts of you know, the left, you know, you're going to see the, I think you'll see a lot of the bureaucracy of the Democratic Party and the Independent Party and Libertarian Party, all that kind of stuff, like kind of take a back seat for a little bit to the bigger issue, which is we can't allow um, the kind of legislation that they're trying to get passed through. Um, We have to galvanize whatever support you know what I mean, that we can, we have to make sure that we're politically organized and that locally, state by state, city by city, we're doing what we can to hold our politicians accountable because, you know, you, you can you can watch, you know, you can watch in shock and awe every night um, uh, whatever the president, you know, does, you know, whatever he does today that's never been done before. But there are things going on locally that we all can have our hands involved you know, that we all can be um, in attendance for and that we all can have our voice heard that, you know, we need to see more people showing up for. And I do think that you're seeing that, um, especially with uh, with uh, everything that's happened in these first few weeks. So it, as we look at, I mean, uh, activism is obviously a part of your work, but you seem to be not just with your own children, but really invested in, 
working with youth organizations and kids. And so I guess my question following on that isn't so much on the activist part, but you've excelled in two fields in your life. I mean, to a real degree. And so when you talk to kids, what do you draw on more? Is it your art background or is it football that you reference? I mean, how big a part of your life and story is football at this point? Because honestly, like, Aaron, when we look at your Instagram feed, like, you look like any of the 20 or 30 artists that I follow, and I would never have guessed you were a football player. How does that fit into your narrative at this point? Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not Q45 anymore. You know, there's no need <laughs> to be that big. But I never, I never was like that. People always wanted to put me in that box of he's a football player. No, like, and at the end of the day, um, like, you know, I had a, I had a really rough beginning of the year having to wrestle with my own mortality because I lost uh, one of my best friends. And mm-hmm. um, he was young. Um, he was a former NFL player himself. And he was a partner of mine in a lot of my community um, initiatives. But in a uh, long story short, I ended up having to do um, an article about him for, um, for our local paper, the Baltimore Sun. And um, having to tell his story, I realized not even halfway through, like a quarter of the way in, you know, football is the smallest part of his story that I even want to tell, you know, because Mm -hmm. if you start talking about football accolades and all that kind of stuff, people don't stick around and listen to what really matters. You know what I mean? And um, yeah. Even even as an athlete coming up, um, I told I, I decided I was going to play in the NFL when I was 11. That's no lie. Mm-hmm. I told my whole family. I talked, talked. Me and my father sat down. At 11, we made a plan for how the next 10 years of my life was going to go for me to get exactly what I had to do to get into the right high school, get into the right college, and all that kind of stuff. Right. So this wasn't anything that wasn't planned. But the fact of the matter is, when the story of my life is told, I want football to be like the thing you spend the least amount of time talking about. Because while it's something that's been a huge part of my life that I've loved, that I've given a large part of my life to, it's a kid's game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a game. And at the end of the day, there's real-life stuff going on. There's real people with real issues that are so much more important than a game. And everything that I've been able to do in my life for others, in a way the game helped pave a way for. But make no mistake about it, the game was always less important. You know what I mean? Um, When I grew up, I idolized a lot of athletes. I idolized guys like Muhammad Ali, you know what I mean? Jack Johnson, um, yep. Jim Brown, a lot less as of late, but he's always going to be an icon to me. Um, you know, guys like that, guys whose who's greatness as an athlete took a back seat to their greatness as human beings, to their mm-hmm. fearlessness in the face of racism, oppression, um, you know what I mean? Injustice, discrimination, you know, um, these were my heroes. So when I decided that I wanted to be 
one of them, that's how I envision myself. I envision myself as somebody who used every part of my platform to shine a light on what was important to me, what was important mm-hmm. to the people that I grew up with, what was important in the city that I grew up in. So um, when I got there, you know, I obviously I was young. You know, I left school at 20 years old. I, was, I, I didn't turn 21 until right before I got drafted. Like, you know, so I get there. I get there and I realized that the landscape for all of this has changed. Yeah. So, you know what I mean? Um, now it's not even about football. It's not even about um, human beings. It's not even about real issues. It's about corporations. It's about business. It's about um, whoever your team's fiscal sponsors are and things like that. You know, all of a sudden, when you speak up on certain issues, now it's a problem. You know? Um, right. And, I got tired of that real quick. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and long story short, you know, the year that I ultimately decided to retire, that was what I was wrestling with. You know, um, I had gotten cut from um, Cincinnati, and the way that that whole process is, had shaken out, you know, just didn't sit right with me. Um, and I was supposed to get on a plane. I had taken like a week where – I went home, I spent some time with my kids and, you know, spent some time in my art studio to get my head clear and all that. And my agent had set up um, a couple trips. My first trip that I was supposed to take was to Indianapolis to meet with the cult. And I'm getting up that morning to um, to pack up to, uh, to get on the plane. Um, I played with my son for a little bit, um, you know, put him put him back uh, uh, with his mother and, um, you know, started packing my bags up. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I just got extremely emotional out of, out of nowhere. Like, literally mm-hmm. had to sit down, you know, had to compose myself because I wasn't crying, but I was just out breathing heavy and not having a panic attack, but I was really unsettled. And I realized, I don't want to get on this damn plane. Yeah. I don't want to go all the way up to Indianapolis to sit in front of another coach and another group of men and relocate my, my, my livelihood again to another city that I don't know. And then go through the process of convincing a whole nother locker room of guys that, you know, I'm down for the cause and, you know, winning is the, is the number one priority for me. And all like, none of it. You know what I mean? And um, it was like a, it was a powerful urgence that I felt. And I picked my phone right up. I called my agent and I said, yo, tell them thank you. Tell them I appreciate the opportunity, but I'm not going. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I told him right there. I said, I'm not sure if I'm done, done, but you need to give me some time. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take, I'm going to take a few months to myself and I ain't playing for nobody this year. You know, mm-hmm. so, um, that was that was when I, you know, I made that, like, because I, I felt that I'd been feeling that pull for a while. The whole issue was, like, my first two years in Buffalo, I was like, man, this is about to be a short career. Because if this is what I got to deal with for the rest of my career, I, they might have, I might have another year. And, you know, right. um, I was that set up with the bureaucracy of football and all of that. But then they got rid of me, and then Rex picked me up. And that, I had mm-hmm. two years where... Literally, like, I had two years of bliss as a football player playing under restaurant. That, you know, I couldn't have had a better time. I couldn't have had a, 
better experience than I had playing with Rex. So that actually right. rejuvenated me as an athlete to say, you know what, if this is how it's going to be, if, if, if they allow me to be myself like this, I'm going to have a long career. You know, um, and then, at, like, to go from that to feeling that fed up as I was that day, I was just like, look, man, what I'm doing off of the field is way more important. That's how I want to be remembered. That's what that's what I really want to be dedicating my blood, sweat, and tears into. Um, yeah. And once you get to that point as an athlete, it's not right for you to still be on the field. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're, at that point, you're still. So I said, rather than become that guy who I've always hated and despised, the guy that's just around to collect a check, you know, um, yep. Yep. I had to make that transition for my own peace of mind. Yep. You know, I think we've seen a sentiment shift in the last few months um, where the sports world has gone from mostly silent observers of what's happening around us to you know, much more outspoken. Now, it's not not everybody is going to be like you said, Jim Brown in the '60s or Muhammad Ali in the '70s. Picking up the metaphorical bullhorn, as you said. That's right. I mean, but do you do you feel now that athletes uh, are going to stick with this desire to be more involved in social um, causes away from sports, or do you are do you are you at all concerned that this is a a small blip and that? ultimately they're going to settle back into just being quiet as to not offend any corporate interests or teams or leagues? No, no, no. You've already had, you've already, first of all, I think that, I think that athletes, athletes have always had a role in, in the, in the, the process of activism. Right. You know, when you look at the history of this country, whether you talk about John Carlos and Tommy Smith, whether you talk about Muhammad Ali, whether you talk about even, um, even Allen Iverson, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. As controversial as he was, he was a, he will be looked back on as a revolutionary figure for his opposition to the whole good boy image that the NBA was trying to throw on all of his players. He changed the world. He he changed things. It's fair. That's a very good point. He revolutionized not only the game but um, the image, fashion. You know, it's because of him that the stuff, NBA like... forces got dress a certain way and all that. Yeah. But basically, I look at it like this. The NFL did this to itself, and this is why. The NFL chose to make its players role models. All right? If you really, really, if you really want to keep it funky, the NFL is the modern – NFL and NHL, these are the modern-day gladiators. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? We're dying earlier than everybody else. You know, we're sustaining injuries that other people can't – can't deal with, you know what I mean? Like, 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 we get to live a little bit better, yeah. We make a little bit more money, yeah. And when you spread it out over a lifetime, it's really not that much when you look at what most guys make. You know, that's why so many guys end up going broke when you mix that with the lavish lifestyle that guys are expected to live when they're in um, those uh, positions. Like, these norms, they weren't created by athletes. They were created by that system that capitalist system that decided that it was going to turn sports into, you know what I mean, this money stuff. So at the end of the day, what you have is you had the NFL saying, you guys are role models. The players Mm -hmm. never asked for that. But years ago they started saying, no, you're going to be role models, you're going to be um, spokesmen for the community, you're going to be this, you're going to be that, you're going to do this many community service hours, right? The problem is, this is how crazy the, their idea of control goes. 
they really believed that they could tell us that we would be role models without asking and then be able mm. to control what that activism looked like. Their thing is, if you want to change the world, you want to do community service work, you want the launch of Peyton Manor Service Award, go find some sick kids. Every place has got some sick kids. Go find a hospital. Put a bunch of jerseys on them. Bring some cameras with you. Put a bunch of jerseys on them. Take a whole bunch of pictures. Make a whole bunch of sick and dying kids feel like they're going to be um, feel like they're going to be better, and that you're going to be around when you really aren't. And make and, and make it an NFL commercial. That's how you change the world. If you want to change the world, you want to go back and you want to fix your hood. You go back and you find a, a, a school lot and you have a camp, right? And you invite all these little poor black kids from the projects out to your camp to run around and get sweaty and drink Gatorade and put a whole bunch of jerseys <laughs> on them and film it and put it on an NFL commercial. And that's how you change the world. But what about the guys who came from households where they had their households ripped apart by the 13th Amendment? You know what I mean? What about the guys mm-hmm. who lost their fathers to the crack, to the crack epidemic? or through the mass incarceration era? What about mm-hmm. the Project Babies that, you know what I mean, that families were locked there by that GI Bill? You know, so when players decide to step outside of the lane and the umbrella the NFL says it's okay with and speak about issues that are way more serious to way more people, the NFL has a problem with that. You can't walk that mm-hmm. back. The NFL started people down this lane. And at, some, and at a certain point, they realize we got a problem because not only do these guys have issues that issues that affect them, that affect people that look like them, that affect people in their families, that will affect their black children, and that will affect the communities in which they come from. But these brothers actually went to college, and I'll be damned. A couple of them decided to get an education. <laughs> so hold up. Not only did they decide to get an education, but they got the audacity to be able to articulate with 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 beautiful uh, 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 specific inferences exactly why these issues are issues and exactly why all of America needs to be paying attention to them. The NFL did that. Colin Kaepernick didn't do that. Arian Foster didn't do that. Brandon Marshall didn't do that. The NFL did that. So now mm-hmm. the NFL's own chickens, in, in a sense, are coming home to roost, and guys are deciding that, you know what, forget what you guys want me to do. This is what I'm passionate about. This is what affects people that look like me. The community that I got to go back to when the NFL is done with me, this is what's important back there. And I don't think that you're going to see that that train turn around. Like, I think that people have understood the importance of it. And regardless of what anybody wants to say um, or how anybody wants to portray it, the fact that nobody can deny is that for three months, for about eight weeks last year, the entire country had to look racism, police brutality, and systemic injustice in the eye. So, Aaron, you've talked about your your art, your artistic practice, the metaphorical bullhorn that every artist needs to hold and wield in these times. What it means to be a former player. What's coming up for you? What's next? What's 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 your short, medium, and long, if you will? Uh. Short, medium, and long. Short, uh, I have a few exhibitions coming up. Um, mm-hmm. I have an exhibition opening at my college at Penn State University um, next month. 
Um, that is a two-month-long show um, that'll be going mm-hmm. on at their uh, uh, Robinson Gallery. I have um, my first major show at a uh, uh, my first show, solo show at a major Baltimore museum this year, mm-hmm. um, opening on June the first through September thirtieth here in Baltimore at the uh, Frederick Douglass Museum. Well, uh, I got a book coming out in uh, in the next couple months. A uh, book of, uh, nice. of art, photography, writing, and uh, that should be um, that should be a pretty. It, it, I've been working on that project for a long time, so I'm really excited about that. And um, let me see what else. Uh, yeah, I'm on an international art tour called the uh, Athletes for Art Renaissance Tour. We got several stops that we'll be making over you know the next couple years, I think contract is for another year. So um mm-hmm. you know, we'll be in uh we'll be at the Estes, I believe, we'll be at uh, Art Basel again this year. We'll be um in England for a show and I forget the other location. But it's a lot going on. I'm 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 really I'm really blessed and really excited with um with where I'm at right now. It took, it took me a while to get to this point but um I think the, uh, the art's finally starting to speak for itself and, and people are finally starting to listen. So, you know, that's a blessing. Look, it's fantastic work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I tell all of our listeners to go check you out online. On Twitter, um, I believe it's Aaron M. Maben. And on Instagram, it's just Aaron Maben. Uh, yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. We're rooting for you. We think you're so talented, and we really can't wait to see what's next. So, um, you know, keep us in the loop, and... Uh, if you ever want anyone to sit down for a portrait, man, I look pretty good uh, under some mm. under the right light. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I hear you. <laughs> and we are back. Okay, in the sports world, when athletes and uh, and uh, people in the media, coaches, when they do interesting stuff away from sports, they take a bag of shit for it. They're, people say they're distractions or they're creating a distraction, but we know life is just work and the things that distract you from work. So right now, we're going to tell you what's been distracting us this week. Gareth, I'm going to start. What do you think about that? Take it away, Brad. Have you heard of the growing phenomenon that is missing Richard Simmons? Uh, I have. I started to listen to episode one recently on a road trip. All right, I, in classic Brad form, I have consumed all forms of media on this that are available to date. Let's break it down. I got a few few questions I want to throw at you about this, Gareth. Okay. I find this, I find this project to be one of the most fascinating and yet problematic forms of pop culture that I've encountered in like the last two years. <laughs> got it. For our listeners, here's what it is. Richard Simmons, the, the, if, if Joe Reed was here, we'd be explaining who he was. Uh, for multiple decades, was one of the most ubiquitous uh, celebrities around. You know, I would say he's a perpetual B-lister. Um, he was a uh, aerobics instructor, put out a series of hugely profitable uh, dance tapes, uh, aerobics tapes mm-hmm. called Sweatin' to the Oldies. Went on Letterman something like 30 times over the years. Did a ton of talk shows. Had one himself. He's just a guy I've seen on infomercials and around media forever. All of a sudden disappears from the public eye about three years ago. And there's been crazy rumors about why. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. A Daily Show producer, 
who a former Daily Show producer who um, was friends with him decided to do this podcast called Missing Richard Simmons, which really it's a really nicely produced show, uh, very much in the NPR kind of uh, Radio Lab style of storytelling. And mm-hmm. he it's basically serial, but looking for Richard Simmons. And so he's talking to everyone in his life. He's trying to figure out what happened. It it's it's really well done. It's really addicting, but it's really problematic for me in terms of the ethics of creating something like this to draw someone out of of a uh, of a what what might be and we'll get into the might in a second what might be a a a choice to leave the public life, and so it's mm. raising some ethical questions about is is the are the creators minds in the right place are the intentions correct does richard simmons have a right to privacy at this point and it's tough there's no easy answers because the whole thing is just very weird so i let me start with this gareth you know enough about the backstory there are rumors that his housekeeper is essentially keeping him hostage in his house or has brainwashed him do you believe something is untoward here or do you believe this guy just wanted to like ghost america well so that's what I knew about this story because I think it was New York Magazine, like maybe a huge story about a couple years ago. Yeah, and then so I had read that and knew about it from that, which is frankly, as we I was driving back from a shoot, my cameraman put on episode one of this, and I think then we like stopped for gas and never picked it up afterwards. You know, like one of those kind of things. Um, so I just figured that's what happened. Look, I understand your point on the problematic nature of it, if indeed that is what Simmons wants. But I, I, I believe the idea that his housekeeper is keeping him hostage for money. I think that sounds very believable to me. So that's what I figured happened, which makes the podcast less bothersome to me um, in that sense. I mean... Richard Simmons was so positive and so accessible, as you hear at the beginning of it, that he he taught a weekly class in uh, Beverly Hills, um, that it is strange to me that he just disappeared like that. So that's why I think there's some validity to the project. Two recent developments. Number one, or not one reason, one not. He did do an interview with the Today Show after that Daily News article came out over the phone and he said I'm fine. Like everyone I just wanted to be by myself. Like no no problem. Now he didn't sound okay. in a great mood. But you know, I mean, he did say I I'm he has made at least one public appearance if you count that as a public appearance. Now I'm a yeah. PR guy. I've got some thoughts on how he's handling this that I would have changed. All he needs to do is come out and do one interview with someone and say I, I was depressed or something like I, I had a tumultuous experience. I'm so sorry for everyone I hurt, but I just wanted to to retire from public life for a while and focus on me. I focus my attention on other people and everyone just leave this alone. He could still do that today and everyone would still leave him alone Two though. The LAPD this week went to his house and they said there's nothing going on like there's nothing weird. Going oh, really? On. Yeah. So that's the thing is like now this podcast is sort of driving the news and new wrinkles are going to happen you know, in real time that they probably will struggle to keep up with. But let me ask you this yeah. question, because I think this is an important question. You mentioned Rick- that makes that's that is a new wrinkle, by the way. I mean, that makes if it- he just ghosted everyone. Let me ask you this. Does a public figure and a person who openly courted celebrity 
four decades. You know, he, he was out there. They, they, this show talks about how they interviewed like star map people. And they say, like, mm-hmm. Richard Simmons made a point to come up to our tour bus every time we were out here. Like, a guy waited by his window and would come out and say hi to people. Does someone like that have a right to just disappear and retire from public life? And we should respect it. Or by courting celebrities so long, is it just like, hey, all rights are off? Um, no, I mean, you always maintain your rights. Like, he doesn't owe anybody anything. Like, that that's... To me, that stuff gets pretty basic, where it's just sort of like... If Kim Kardashian did the same thing, would you say the same thing about her? Well, look, I think she's different. I think Richard Simmons actually made some pretty interesting contributions over the years, and very... uh, I don't know, he really... I, I think that there's an interesting point to be made about him, that he actively tried to improve people's lives. Um... Kim Kardashian, I don't think, ever had that sort of uh, uh, well-meaning goal at the end of... I think she's famous for famous sake. But if Kim Kardashian came out and said, this life I've been leading has been taking a toll on my mental health and the mental health of my family, and I just got uh, robbed by a bunch of people in Paris, and I can't deal with this anymore, and I'm retiring from public life, please leave me alone... You know, I think that there's a way to handle it, and that speaks to what you're saying from a PR angle. Um, but I would have no problem with that. It's really, it's really fascinating. I, the, if he was just like, it's not Shia LaBeouf putting a bag on his head on the red carpet that says, "I'm not a public figure." I mean, that's that's just you trolling. That's a publicity stunt. That I mean, is it. Yeah, that's that's yeah. playing the game. Going to your house and saying, "I no longer want to participate in this," is a different. That is a it could be construed as a real retirement. Now, look, maybe it turns out this woman is, as one dude in the podcast alleges, a witch who is keeping him through black magic. If so, I mean, crazy. Uh, <laughs> but if he's just a guy who's having some bout of depression and or, look, maybe he's someone who gave everything to everyone his whole life and just was like, I can't anymore. Like, I'm at the end of right. my days. I need to just focus on me. I want to retreat into my own private universe with all my money. I have a real hard time like thinking we should that he owes us an explanation for that, even as much as people want him to give it. So again, I think it's fascinating. It is like this again, this is the serial of the celebrity culture game. And I find it an awesome piece of, of um, multimedia. And I encourage everyone to listen to it. Uh, I just wonder if his existence is more a commentary about the 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 sort of epidemic of celebrity culture, which, hello, just elected our president. Um, I wonder right. if, is if it, I wonder if this is just another sign that like that that there are really no rules to this, and and once you step into the celebrity universe, uh, there is there is no escaping it at all, even if you try. Yeah, and I, it's also. You know, it's a piece that is probably more about its host than its subject. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So, I, enough on Richard Simmons. What's yours? Uh, all right. So, mine, we basically we talked to uh, Aaron Maben this week about art. And so, I just kind of wanted to. I've talked about contemporary art on here um, in the past. Oh, oh have you, Gareth? <laughs> hey, hey now. 
That's like me saying I've talked about uh, I've talked about bad movies on here, or I've talked about podcasts on here. <laughs> right, right. Um, but the art world right now is, especially in New York, is undergoing a major transition, um, similar to uh, maybe the disappearance of Richard Simmons. Uh, Andrea Rosen Gallery, one of the the major galleries in Chelsea just announced that it's closing. And a fr- one of my best friends, Scott Zier of Zier Smith Gallery here in New York, uh, they're also closing their current space uh, at the end of April when their lease is up. So it's it's been one of these things where I've been talking to Scott a lot about this because you know it's a transitional moment, this period in his life that's been going on for 10 years. This gallery that I've gone to a gajillion times and hung out with them and bought work through them um it's closing and and so just as that as that world undergoes a transition and we talked to Aaron Maven about art um I guess I've talked in the past about going to look at art and things like that honestly this would be my way of saying Try living with art or living with those sorts of interesting objects, as Scott and I were talking about it the other night. You know, if you go to an art gallery or museum, grab the postcard, frame that and throw it up on the wall. You know, just live with interesting objects. That has been my distraction of late. It has kind of been what I've been reading about, just the changes that are going on there. My son, when he wakes up from his nap, we're going to go for a walk at the galleries on a Saturday um, and spend the afternoon together and, you know, grab whatever ephemera you can and throw it on your wall and you will have free art. So that's my distraction. I know I've hit it before, but it's what I'm doing today. It's how I spent my last 48 hours when not working and talking to Scott and uh, sort of undertaking a taxonomic look at the current Chelsea gallery situation. So that is what is distracting me. Can I put you on the spot? Yes. You don't have to answer. I might not. Most that you have ever spent on a piece of art. Definitely not answering. I knew that was going to be the question and I will not share that publicly though. I, though I will say this, I recently got, look, we've bought some art. We've bought a few paintings, some drawings, things like that over the years, my wife and I, and we found it to be a very, it's something that we enjoy doing. It's made our lives together better. And some of the stuff we've bought has not appreciated at all in value. And some of the things we bought were lucky enough that we basically got an appraisal this week. And it's, you need to call your insurance agent and reinsure that, dude. So it can work out. Just buy things you want to live with and that you will enjoy whether they go up or down in value. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you was, do you buy art as an investment or do you buy art as a passion? As we Scott and I were up till about three in the morning on Thursday night talking about this philosophically, and it is if you see an interesting object that you want to live with, buy that. So my wife and I uh, got drunk at an art uh, auction and uh, bought a uh, a picture of the side of a building that was framed for a hundred dollars because she got overly aggressive and wanted to make the first bid on the junkiest thing there that no one else bid on. And we just fucking threw it in the garbage on the way out the door. <laughs> it was like a, it was like buying a accessories poster. I have no idea what we were thinking. We were just that's what you get when you drink at a gallery opening. 
That is fantastic. Well, our school is having a public auction or a silent auction, public auction tonight. So as one of my uh, like fellow dads put it, well, I've never seen a silent auction. I haven't gotten drunk enough to buy something at. Yeah, so. I will pass on that. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's our show. Uh, shout out to Aaron Maven. Go, again, go check him out. Instagram. I mean, he, he's a really interesting guy, and I think he's a great example of um, – of someone who is, you know, who many fans of the Bills might look at and say, oh, he's just a busted draft pick. I've seen articles that said, oh, you know, he was he was a wasted first rounder because he didn't pan out there. I mean, but but I hate classifying people just by their sports careers. I mean, here's a guy who is probably still in his in his late 20s, early 30s that has had this whole other life that is so uh interesting and inspiring and he's really good yep. at and so i just wish him nothing but the best and i hope people that if, if you followed him in buffalo or, or at penn state and you were a fan of his go check out his art like uh, if you're willing to cheer for him on the field then go cheer for these guys when they when they go create because it's just as vulnerable a situation for them and uh all right i'm off my soapbox on that like i just i feel strongly about it like if you're if you're an athlete you're making art man we are behind you yeah man uh i want to give a shout out I want to give a shout out to my son Wiley. You woke up way too damn early from your nap, and I made you sit in your crib screaming. So I'm gonna go wake you. I'm gonna go get you out of there now, and you're gonna be pissed. And I'm gonna deal with you the rest of the afternoon. So all these gallery owners, and so shout out to Wiley. You woke up way too early. The rest of the day is not gonna be fun. All right, Gareth. I, since I'm gonna take a crack at editing this podcast because Joe's on the road. We'll give a shout-out to Joe and Adam, and then let's let's end by you and me trying to alternate back and forth doing Adam's shout-outs. Okay, you ready? I'm going to start. All right. Yeah. My boy Uzi. Def Jeff. Meech. Oh, no, no, Little no, no, no. Swanee. Sorry, no, 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 wait. Little Swanee first. No, let's get this wrong. Like, let's, you know, like, let's... No, I'm just okay. wondering, like, is that right? Little Swanee, Meech, or Meech, Little Swanee? Ron Mack. Booty Rappers. Stay booty. <laughs> Stay booty. Right now, everybody.